Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Hak I hope all of you had a, a wonderful Seder. Uh, I got to have two, one with my, my in-laws, my wife's parents, so we, we drove out there and had a nice Seder with family. And then the next day, we had a, a wonderful Seder with some, some friends still out in East Texas. So I got to do two Passover Seders, and that was absolutely wonderful. An interesting thing someone brought up, the, what's the earliest record of a actual, as we might recognize it, Seder? Where is that written? The Gospels. The Gospels, that's the earliest record. Now, of course, the first time they kept Passover was in Exodus. But that wasn't exactly what we would recognize as a Seder. They probably didn't have the four cups of wine. They definitely didn't sing the Hillel. Uh, But the first time of it being is is in the New Testament. That's that's very interesting. There's a lot of ways to approach when, when... Rabbi Schiller asked me to do the Passover drosh. There's so many things you can pull at. There's so many ways you can connect the dots. So many threads you can pull at and talk for hours. Uh, we're not doing that today. Some, darn. Some interesting insights, though, began from uh, a talk uh, Rabbi Foreman did on how Exodus was about healing wounds. It's interesting. So, I'll, I'll summarize his argument as we go and also add some content of my own. But he starts off with essentially a summary of the Exodus story and how God brought Israel out and he redeemed them as a people. But he did it recognizing the wounds they had incurred up to that point as a people because they were not down in Egypt as what was necessarily his ideal. I don't think any of us would argue that the Holy Spirit led the sons of Jacob to betray Joseph and sell him into slavery. None of us would probably make that argument, but God was able to redeem it. So where do we pick up in Exodus with the children of Israel? Well, in Exodus 1 verse 6, Now Joseph died as well as all his brothers and all that generation. The children of Israel were fruitful And swarmed, it's an interesting word, and increased and became very, very strong. And the land became filled with them. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know about Joseph. Now, the commentators say that wasn't necessarily a memory lapse. It was that he started to act as if Joseph never existed. And that makes a lot more sense because they had historical records at the time. You don't just forget that a person basically stopped your entire people from starving. But Pharaoh realized what recognizing the Israelites would mean for Egypt and said, we're going to forget all of that. He said to his people, behold, the people of the children of Israel are more numerous and stronger than we are. Get ready. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they increase and a war befall us and they join our enemies and wage war against us and depart from the land. Then a few verses later, now the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one who was named Shifra and the second who was named Puah. And he said, 
When you deliver the Hebrew women and you see on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, she may live. And that didn't work, as we know. And so then at the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the Nile, and every daughter you shall allow to live. Since that time, we've seen this a number of times. This is, as we call it today, genetic warfare. There's a couple of ways you can erase a people essentially from existence. One of which you can just slaughter them all up front, and then they're just gone. Another way is kill all of the men, and the women have to intermarry. And then effectively, that as a people group has been erased. Genetically, there are no more Y chromosomes from the men of that entire culture. They're gone, and everyone else has intermarried into yours. This was a common tactic that different civilizations would use to erase a people from existence. And that is exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do. A couple generations later, all the men will be gone, and all you will have is now women married to Egyptian men who will raise Egyptian babies. We all know the rest of the story. Moshe is 40 years in Egypt, and then he had 40 years in exile, and then the encounter at the burning bush, which is Moshe's first recorded interaction with God. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not a very spectacular interaction. If you were going to think of a way that God is going to appear to Moshe and say, you're going to redeem my people and do all these wonderful things through my strength, most of us could imagine a much more spectacular way for God to appear to Moses than a burning bush. Because he's going to go back to Israel and say, God appeared to me in a burning bush. It's not that spectacular of a thing. So Moses replies when God tells him what his calling is. Moses says to God, Behold, I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, What is his name and what shall I say to them? God says to Moshe, I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. And he said, So you shall say to the children of Israel, I will be has sent me to you. So Moses seemingly withheld part of his name. Instead of I am that I am, he just says, I am has sent me to you. And uh, I'll paraphrase it, but Rashi has an interesting thing on why there's this separation there. Because it goes from I am that I am, to just Why do we have these two when it's never really explained? And he says, God told Moses, I am that I am, meaning I am with Israel in their current subjugation and their turmoil and their troubles and in this crisis. And I'm going to be with Israel in all of their future crises and all their future subjugations and all their future turmoil. I'll always be with you. Every time you're subjugated and oppressed and put down and slaughtered by the thousands, I'll be there. And Moses says to God, I cannot go to them with that message. They can't see past this. You want me to say, hey, this thing you're dealing with right now, don't worry, it's going to happen again and again, and God's going to always be with you. And God says, you're right, you've spoken well, this is the conversation between me and you. All I want you to tell them is, I am, has sent me. What's interesting about that interaction, whether whether true or not, uh, isn't the point. Rashi's drawing out that God knew he had empathy towards his people. 
So he says, go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord God of your forefathers has appeared to me, the God of Avraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, saying, I have surely remembered you and what is being done to you in Egypt. Now, that word remembered or, or visited, and sometimes you'll see it uh, translated, redeemed, is um, a pakad. When's the last time that word is used in the Torah? Well, it's a promise we're drawing on from Joseph. In the end of Genesis, Joseph adjured the children of Israel and said, God will surely remember, pakad, you, and he and you shall take up my bones out of here. Don't leave me in Egypt, guys. I don't care if it's my remains. Get me out of here. So God says, I have remembered you. And Moses says, that's great. They're not going to believe me. They will not heed my voice. I'm going to go to them and say, God appeared to me in a bush, a burning bush. And he said, you're going to take Israel out of here. They're not going to believe this, God. So God says, don't worry. I'm sending you back with three signs. Now, it's easy for us because most of us have heard this story dozens, if not hundreds of times, to think, well, it had to go that way because that's how it happened. But think about it. If you were in Moses' shoes and God said, I'm going to give you three signs, are these the ones you'd ask for? Probably not. You, you might have asked for something like, give me uh, superhuman strength, like God later gave Samson. If Moses can show back up basically invincible, and tell Pharaoh, I'm taking the children of Israel out of here, and you can do absolutely nothing to stop me because you can't stab me, and I have the strength of a 100 men. I can tear through your chariots and your horsemen on my own. Pharaoh wouldn't have a choice. Then he has to let them go. That's not what God did. God said, I'm going to give you three signs because they won't believe you. Your staff to a snake and then back to a staff. Your healthy hand, you're going to put it into your cloak and take it out, and it's going to be leprous. And then put it back in and take it out, and it's going to be healthy again. And then you're going to take water from the Nile and pour it in the ground, and it'll turn into blood. These are your three signs, Moses. So Moses and Aaron went, and they assembled all the elders, the children of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and performed the signs before the eyes of the people. The people believed, and they heard that the Lord had remembered them. That word again, Pekad, the children of Israel, and that he saw their affliction and they kneeled and prostrated themselves. What was so powerful about those signs that the children of Israel, Moses and Aaron, went from, they're never going to believe me, to, of course they will. These were hardly the most extraordinary signs that, that God performed. But why these three? And these weren't for Pharaoh. These weren't for Egypt. These were for Israel. These were for family. These signs weren't spectacular. And most of us can think of far more spectacular signs, but them being spectacular was not the point. God was telling Israel, I remembered you. I have not forgotten. I've seen everything, every last thing they did. I have not forgotten one bit. So take a look at those signs. The Lord said to him in, in Exodus chapter 4, what is in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, cast it to the ground. And he cast it to the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Expected, God didn't warn him. I think if I threw a stick to the ground and it turned into a snake, I too would run. 
And the Lord said to Moses, stretch forth your hand and take hold of its tail. So Moses stretched forth his hand and grasped it, and it became a staff in his hand. Why is that spectacular? Take a closer look at it. The word for staff, mate, is the same word for tribe, as in the tribes of Israel. Egypt had warred a very successful propaganda campaign against Israel for, at this point, generations. And in a propaganda campaign, there are some essential things you have to do. You have to say these people have too much power, they're dangerous, they're powerful. Their contribution to society is not proportional to how many of them there are. They control these important things, and if given the opportunity, they will use these to destroy you. They're cunning. They're powerful. It's them versus us. And on top of all of that, there's another really important thing you have to do in a successful propaganda campaign. You have to dehumanize them. They aren't really people. They might look like you. They might kind of talk like you. They might have a family and children like you and work a job, but at the end of the day, they are not really like you. They're not really human. That interesting language in the beginning of chapter 1, the children of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and increased. That word swarmed is usually reserved for something like bugs or insects. As you've seen in so many propaganda campaigns, probably in your history books, but some of which is still used in parts of the world today against the Jewish people. Dehumanizing is a common anti-Semitic trope. They're not really people. They're more like something else, but they're not human. So if you kill them, you're not really killing a person because they don't matter, because they're not real people. Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more numerous and stronger than we are. Get ready. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they increase. And war befall us, and they join our enemies and wage war against us and depart from the land. These people, Pharaoh said, are sneaky and cunning, and they are traitorous. They will wrap themselves around us and choke us to death if we don't stop them, kind of like a snake. You throw your staff to the ground, and it turns into a snake, but you pick it back up, and you realize it wasn't actually a snake. It was a staff. Egypt threw that tribe to the ground and treated them horribly. They dehumanized them. But God's telling Moses, I know this isn't true. What Egypt has tried to do to you, I know all along you are a tribe. You're not a snake. This propaganda, these lies that have plagued you for generations are lies, and I am going to reveal it to everyone. That's the first sign, the staff, the tribe, to a snake. But that was all a lie. Pick it up. Get it off the ground. It's not really a snake. All the propaganda was a lie. Now, the second sign, the the leprous hand, the false leprosy. The Lord said further to him, now put your hand into your bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom, and he took it out. And behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. 
And he said, put your hand back into your bosom. And he put his hand back into his bosom. And when he took it out, it became like the rest of his flesh, healthy. So false leprosy. Again, not this really spectacular sign that I think most of us would ask for if we were going to go ask the most powerful ruler in the world to let his slave population leave. But that's what God gave Moses. Why was this meaningful? Why did this sign, one of the three, lead the elders of the children of Israel to say, surely God has remembered us, and they bowed? There's one other time in Torah where it records someone having leprosy. Miriam. The only other time in Torah someone has leprosy. We have commands on how to deal with leprosy, but one other specific person is named mentioning having leprosy. Miriam. And what does Aaron say to Moses on Miriam's behalf when she has leprosy? Let her, Miriam, not be like the dead, which comes out of his mother's womb with half his flesh consumed. Remember Pharaoh's command to the midwives to kill all the baby boys? The commentators add something interesting to it, and they and, uh, might have been Ibn Ezra, said, this was done secretly. This was not a public decree. Pharaoh secretly told the midwives, if you see it's a boy as soon as it is birthed, before it has a chance to breathe its first breath, kill it and pass it off as a stillborn. Don't let that baby take a single breath. Kill it and say, oops, your baby didn't live. You'll know the truth, that it was a healthy baby boy, but they won't. Pretend the baby is a stillborn. Pretend it's dead. But we know that didn't work. The Hebrew midwives did not listen to Pharaoh, and they they passed it off as these these Hebrew women are, are too fast, and uh, we can't get there in time, so the baby's already born. There is an obvious sign there, that false leprosy. What they tried to say was dead, I know that was a lie, and so do you. And you were expected to buy that lie, but it didn't work. That hand they tried to say is leprous, is healthy. Those babies they tried to pass off as stillborn were not stillborn. You know it, and I know it. And then that third sign, Water to blood. It will come to pass, they do not believe either of these two signs. They do not heed your voice. You shall take the water of the Nile and spill it on the dry land, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on dry land. Now, the Nile was a wonderful, wonderful thing for the Egyptian civilization. It would regularly flood, very predictably, And it would let them have enormous crop harvests. It was the beating heart of Egypt as far as they were concerned. Because that was the source, again, as far as they were concerned, of their strength and of their power and of their might was the Nile. And what did Pharaoh tell the Egyptians to do when his secret command to the midwives didn't work? take all those babies, the baby boys, and just throw them in the Nile. Get rid of them. And water is an interesting thing. If you've ever watched a ship sink, you have this structure, and then suddenly, it's gone. 
And very quickly, the waters are still and clean like there was nothing ever there. And Pharaoh did that to generations of little boys, wherever he had the power to. The Nile nourished Egypt. And while the Egyptians looked at it and saw clean crystal water that blessed them, every Israelite in Egypt saw something else. They saw bloody water. They knew the truth. With these three signs, God was telling Israel, I know they threw you to the ground and treated you like snakes to be feared and trampled. I know they tried to pretend your baby boys were dead when they were really alive. I know when that did not work, they threw your baby boys into the Nile. And we all know that is bloody water. And that is why at the end of chapter 4, the people believed they heard the Lord and remembered the children of Israel. They saw their affliction. And they kneeled and prostrated themselves. They realized that God took their wounds and were redeeming their wounds in those signs. Those signs told them God has seen all of it. And he is ready to act. He didn't miss a beat. And we all know how the rest of the story goes. But I'll let Asaph tell it from Psalm 78. And you're welcome to read along. He turned their canals into blood and their flowing waters they could not drink. He incited against them a mixture of wild beasts which devoured them and frogs which mutilated them. He gave their produce to the finishing locusts and their toil to the increasing locusts. He killed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with locusts. He gave over their animals to the hail and their cattle to the fiery bolts. He dispatched against them the kindling of his anger wrath, fury, and trouble, a delegation of evil messengers. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not withhold their soul from death, and he delivered their body to pestilence. He smote every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruit of their strength in the tents of Ham. The plagues, each and every one, was meant to humiliate not just Egypt, but their gods. Because God said, I'm going to exalt myself over them, that they will know that I am God. Each one of those plagues was specifically designed to humiliate the gods in their pantheon. So God was able to show these demon idols that you're worshiping are powerless. Because God had the power to turn the Nile, their river, into blood. God had the power to send frogs. He had the power to send locusts and lice, their livestock, all of their harvests were powerless against what he sent, that he was able to mix fire in with hail. Two opposing gods in their pantheon that would never cooperate together, God forced together and used it to destroy their crops to the point where even Pharaoh's advisors were saying, what are you doing, Pharaoh? Egypt is lost. And then Israel comes out of Egypt And at the end of Deuteronomy, they're told, a prophet from among you, like your brothers, Moses is saying, like me, the Lord your God will set up for you. You shall hearken to him. Now, if you're Israel, the promise of another Moses, a second Moses, that sounds great. Send him immediately. Every generation is one of this Moses, who we later begin to call Mashiach, the Messiah. 
to the nations. The promise of a second Moses is terrifying. Look at what the first Moses did to the nations. Moses turned the water to blood, flooded Egypt with frogs, plagues of insects, disease, beasts, fire, hail, supernatural darkness, then killed all their firstborn. God made an example out of Egypt through Moses. The nations did not want a second Moses. Why would you want another Moses who would do these things? That's not what God wanted. Things rarely happen the way God necessarily exactly wanted. And that's something that a lot of us need to realize, that just because something happened a certain way, God didn't necessarily want you to make those mistakes or for someone else to mistreat you. God did not want King David to sleep with Bathsheba and then kill Uriah. That whole thing was not part of God's plan. Because God is able to redeem it and do something with it doesn't mean that is what God wanted in the first place. God said in Isaiah, I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will cause them to rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be acceptable upon my altar. And for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God's plan was not to have this perpetual us versus them, where you're with Israel or you're just permanently on the outside. That was never what God wanted. So we got, we have the second Moses, Messiah Yeshua. His coming had people terrified. For a number of reasons, Herod, the first Herod we read about, tried to have him killed, and obviously it didn't work. But the idea of this coming Messiah terrified kings who were familiar with the Tanakh, because they knew what this could mean for them, and especially what the Jews of his time thought. They were looking for Messiah, son of David, the conquering king. And for very good reasons, everyone in that generation was looking for the Messiah who would fight back the Romans and reestablish the, the kingdom of God in Israel. But it didn't happen that way. And we see an interesting mirror for all of the plagues that God did to Egypt. All of the things that would give people reason to fear that second Moses, to think there's no way we want this guy showing up. There's an interesting mirror, an interesting spin on each of the plagues that God did to Israel, or God did to Egypt through Moshe. Yeshua did not turn water to blood. He turned it to wine. He didn't send a plague of frogs, which was an Egyptian sign of rebirth and renewal. He told his followers, that they had to be born again. He didn't throw dirt, a sign of humility and lowliness in the air, and make a plague for his enemies. He was humble and even once used dirt to heal a blind man. Yeshua did not unleash supernatural plagues or diseases and wild beasts on the land to destroy crops and livestock. He supernaturally fed thousands. And he sent his followers out to heal and to bless. He sought workers for a bountiful harvest. He had total control over storms and all forces of nature, but he never sought to use it as a weapon. And even when his disciples wanted to call fire down from heaven, he rebuked his disciples. Through Moshe, God split the sea and destroyed the Egyptian army. Yeshua calmed storms and walked on water to reach his disciples. A physical darkness came when he was on the cross, but the only true darkness comes from his absence. Instead of requiring the firstborn of a wicked generation, 
Yeshua himself took on the curse of sin of the whole world and offered himself. Yeshua's ministry sent a message to the nations. The second Moses sent a message. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob loves you. God does not want to curse and hurt and humiliate you. That is not his objective. God showed Israel he knew that he could work things out and redeem everything that had happened to them. Every last thing. And this is one of the many stories of Passover. That our freedom is not just a physical freedom from Egypt. And we're commanded that each and every one of us in every generation is to say, God brought me, us, out of Egypt. Not our ancestors. God brought us out. That is not only a physical slavery. It is also a spiritual slavery. Because those wounds that God showed Israel, I've seen all of these things. I've seen how they dehumanized you and called you snakes. I've seen how they tried to kill your babies secretly. When that didn't work, they tried mass genocide publicly. These left them with very deep wounds. Wounds so deep, I would submit, that first generation could not enter the land because of them, because they could not leave their slavery mentality behind. They'd been so wounded in Egypt. And that sends us an interesting message. It sends us a very important message. If you give God your wounds, he can do something with them that you never could on your own. But we often hold on to our wounds as I call it a substitutionary fulfillment. As in, if I cannot have things as I wanted them, at least give me this substitute. Let me be hurt about it. Let me be angry about it. Let me mistreat other people. Let me go gossip about them and say all kinds of horrible things about them. Give me this wound. If I can't have things as I want them, at least give me this. And that turns us into narcissists. Because then we insist on having to see things as we want them. And anyone who interrupts that, that vision that we have, it makes us greatly upset. It's the story of Narcissus. He became so infatuated with his own reflection in a pool that anyone who would disturb how he saw that reflection made him very angry and upset. Israel held on to their hurt in the wilderness, that first generation. They couldn't get rid of their slave mentality. And those wounds ran so deep, they weren't able to really give it to God. And whenever trouble arose for that first generation, they lived through their wounds and their hurts. They had a weird Stockholm syndrome. Let us go back to Egypt. As if they'd somehow forgotten. Egypt had been destroyed and they wouldn't exactly be welcomed with open arms. They couldn't give it to God. They held their wounds and they held them close. Scottish poet Robert Burns wrote about the good wife Kate nursing her wrath to keep it warm. And of course, when you keep your wrath close to you and keep it warm, it comes with all sorts of both mental and physical maladies. Because the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Here's an interesting exercise for you as we're talking about wounds and hurts. 
Imagine each of you had been given a, a notepad and a pen, something you can write with. And you had some time, let's say 15 minutes, to your, your biggest wound or your biggest couple of wounds. Write down what it is. Not defending it, just explaining it. Maybe you were betrayed. Maybe you were hurt. Maybe someone humiliated you. Maybe you were lied about. Maybe you were put in unfair situations. We're not going to take 15 minutes for this, but imagine you were able to write down a couple paragraphs of what your biggest wounds are. The things that are unfortunately probably defining you and defining your relationships, defining how you treat other people, and ultimately how you are going to approach God. And remember, you're not defending your wounds. You're just explaining it. Now imagine I told you that we had a little fire up here. And you could walk up and put that piece of paper in the fire. And God will take those wounds away from you. You will lose all of your hurts. You will lose your woundedness from all the things that happened to you. And you'll no longer even have a right or a need to be upset or angry about it. That it'll all be gone. And if you're honest, some of you are a little uncomfortable with that idea. And you're a little reluctant to throw that piece of paper in the fire because you've been nursing your wrath, just like Israel did. And you might say, you don't know what he did. You don't know what she said. You don't know how they lied to me, betrayed me, used me, hurt me. You weren't there. You don't know what they did to my family. God does. It is absolutely essential that we all learn to respond as Joseph did. What you meant for harm God is meant for good. That there is absolutely nothing that God cannot redeem. And we get into this trap sometimes of before we think, I'll go ahead and throw that piece of paper in the fire and and give up the rights to be hurt and wounded. I'll give it all up. And we'll think, I wonder if they're miserable over how they treated me. Even thinking that says that you haven't actually forgiven and you are still a hostage, that you are still in slavery, that you are still letting what Pharaoh did to you define you. You have to not just forgive them. You have to bless them with love. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. This does not mean be naive. It does not mean be defenseless. And it does not mean you fail to set up boundaries. It does mean you have to pray for them and you have to bless them with love if you actually want to be free. Otherwise, Pharaoh is still telling you who you are. This Passover season, God is calling you at a minimum to remember that what you were, a slave to sin and death, that you are a slave to your wounds and that your identity comes from Pharaoh. And he's calling you and reminding you that you are free. 
And if you're not free, he wants you to be free. Wherever you have not experienced a freedom in your life, in the hurt and the wounds, whatever Pharaoh or any Pharaoh in your life has done to you, maybe it was a boss, maybe it was a best friend, maybe it was a family member or a coworker, it's rarely a complete stranger. That's the uncomfortable thing. So often the people closest to us, that way we let the closest into our hearts, they have the most power to hurt us. Imagine if you're in front of a crowd of a thousand people and someone just yelled out, you're a jerk. Whatever, doesn't matter. The person doesn't know me. Now imagine your own mother said it. The people closest to you often have by far the most power to hurt you because they often know us the best and that can strike the deepest. You are not a hostage to your hurts and your wounds. Give these to God. And maybe he won't be turning a staff into a snake for you or water into blood. But he will set you free. If you're living in guilt, bring that to him. Because so often we leave ourselves wounded over something that we've done and deeply regret. King David changed completely after his incident with Bathsheba. He was never the same again. He couldn't recover from that fully. And so often, we living our very human lives make very human decisions that leave us later going, I can't believe I did that. And at that point, you have a choice to make. Is your sin going to define you or is your name written in the book of life, that name given to you by God. The same God who took Egypt's firstborn as a final punishment can also offer his firstborn in place of your punishment. You, this Passover season, do not forget, are not a slave. He freed us from Egypt. He freed us from Pharaoh. He freed us from bondage. He freed us from that identity Pharaoh tried to give us. And God formally made us a nation. Charles Spurgeon wrote, We can picture the anxieties and the anticipations of Israel, but we can scarcely sympathize with them unless we as followers of the Messiah have the same deliverance from spiritual Egypt. Let us, brethren, go back to the day in our experience when we abode in the land of Egypt working in the brick kilns of sin, toiling to make ourselves better and finding it to be of no avail. Let us recall that memorable night, the beginning of months, the commencement of a new life in our spirit and the beginning of an altogether new era in our soul. In holy solemnity, let our hearts approach that ancient supper. Let us go back to Egypt's darkness. And by holy contemplation, behold, Instead of the destroying angel, the angel of the covenant, at the head of the feast, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Would the music team please come up? Would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, rock of Israel, our Redeemer, our Savior. Lord, we have no other source 
but you. You are our blessing. You are our source. Lord, the mighty work you did in Egypt for your people Israel, and you set them free, and you guided them with compassion. Lord, the empathy that you had for them, that you had remembered them, that you knew all of the things they'd gone through. Lord, each and every person here has had struggles, has had frustrations, has had stumbles of their own, and has had betrayals. Every person here, and if they haven't experienced any of these yet, given time they will. Lord, we don't always get to choose our circumstances, but we do get to choose how we respond. Will we respond as slaves to sin and death, as Pharaoh's workers that are disposable and cheap? Or will we respond as the priceless, as the redeemed sons of God, as the followers of Messiah Yeshua? Lord, I ask that you would put in our hearts in this Passover season the strength to approach every single trouble, every single trial as sons of God, that we will be not slaves, but redeemed and free men and women by the name of your son, Yeshua, the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Haq